for all things land development, planning and property. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. To find out how Ian can help you, visit propertyonfire.co.uk. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Property on Fire. So what do we have coming up in today's episode? As usual, several of you have been emailing your questions to ian at propertyonfire.co.uk and the odd tweet to at propertyonfire. This episode is no exception and we thank you all for your questions, however you send them in. You may recall from the last episode that Lucy was asking if she could now evict a tenant who's causing her a bit of trouble. I have on today's episode Angie Nichols to answer that question and to give us an update on the current situation with regards to courts and what you can and probably more importantly what you can't do. We will also be talking about air source heat pumps and a rant about professional that we all will use at some point on our property journey. So without further ado, let's get started. But before we do, please do like, review and subscribe to this podcast and come with me on this property journey. But first of all, a massive thank you to each and every one of you, not only for listening to this episode, but for downloading and listening to the first three episodes. It was a real pleasure to look on Apple, iTunes, whatever they're called these days, and actually see the podcast in the top 20 of both business and education categories. I honestly didn't expect to see this podcast on the same page as the likes of Tim Ferriss, Frank Skinner, Tony Robbins, Gary V, Fraser Brooks, Jay Shetty, and many more. So once again, thank you for downloading and thank you for supporting this podcast, Property on Fire. Before we get underway with our first question, it would seem that my chat about asbestos in episode two with Ian's A to Z of property and then the follow-up question on episode three via Twitter at Property on Fire has provoked a few more questions. As you probably know, I'm always happy to answer any question on property where I can, where I can't or I feel that a guest would be better to answer that, then I will bring them in. To Ben, yes, if you can avoid disturbing those floor tiles, then please do. Perhaps put your new flooring over them. However, you ought to really inform any contractors who might work on the floor of your suspicion of there being asbestos there. If you're not 100% sure, you can send off a small sampling kit, probably on Amazon, and I will put a link in the show notes for a testing kit that costs around £25. I'll also add a link to the HSE or Health and Safety Executives website on asbestos. And Pete, thank you very much for your question. Yes, you can remove asbestos yourself in the home, but the Health and Safety Executive or HSE advise you to really use a trained professional to carry it out. I would strongly suggest wearing the correct protective equipment if you do. When you do dispose of it, you must legally dispose of it as hazardous waste. The last time I had to do it, which was in Kent, I had to double bag it and take it to a special unit at the local tip where the staff had to wear full protective suits and masks, which these days is not too too unusual, I appreciate. But many councils no longer accept it or limits as to where you can drop it off. So please check locally wherever you are so that you can dispose of it legally. This is Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. And now, Ian's rant. Right, before we jump into our first question, it's time for a quick rant. This week's rant comes from Sam, and she writes, It's got to be solicitors for me. 
The ones who efficiently do their job correctly in a timely manner are like gold dust. The rest seem to rip you off for doing very little, usually miss some critical stuff and make the situation far worse. The arrogance of some of them is simply unbelievable. They also add to your cost by taking too long. For example, when you're incurring interest while waiting for them, there is little customer-centered service. You'd think by now they would work out that we can tell everyone in property who is good and who is brilliant or diabolical. Rant not over. Thanks, Sam, and I appreciate your rant there. I can fully understand. Over the last few years, I've had very good solicitors and I've had downright awful solicitors. One of the bugbears I always have is when you're about to do an exchange or completion, the solicitor suddenly vanishes on holiday and never tells you. Why? Why don't they actually tell you? Tell us when you're going on holiday. We aren't mind readers. Just let us know, please. It's a simple thing, isn't it? If you've got a rant, why not let me know? Let off steam by sending me an email to ian at propertyonfire.co.uk or you can tweet or Facebook me at Property on Fire. The choice is yours, but I would really love to hear your rants so you can get it off your chest. And if you want to stay anonymous, I really don't mind. Now, I've just had my rant about solicitors, and I'm joined now by Tim Bishop, who is a senior partner at Bonalac and Bishop Solicitors, who are based in Salisbury in Wiltshire. And I'm hoping that Tim can explain to us about how we go about picking the right solicitor for the right legal task. Welcome, Tim, to Property on Fire. How to find a decent property solicitor? Well, that's a good question. Now, although I own a law firm and I'm an investor and developer as well, I'm not actually a conveyancer, and I've gone through the issues of actually finding the right solicitor myself, and it's not always easy. But my first bit of advice is if you do find a good solicitor, hang on to them. Stick to them like glue, don't let them get away. Uh, and I have six tips to actually find that decent property solicitor. So number one is make sure you get someone who's a specialist in property investment. Well, why do I say that? Well, 40, 50 years ago, solicitors were more generalists and there were less juniors. And so it wasn't unusual for the average solicitor who's dealing with conveyancing to have plenty of experience of commercial matters, commercial conveyancing and other issues as well. And that gave them a much broader picture. But these days, most residential conveyancing uh, people uh, actually deal with only residential conveyancing and usually not for investors. And there's quite a difference. If you're an investor, there may well be other issues involved. For example, you may well be buying through a company, therefore may be issues regarding loans, uh, company organisation, uh, joint ventures, etc. Quite a few things that can potentially trip up the average uh, conveyancer who's only used to buying uh, simple, buy, uh, simple properties on the local estate. Uh, and it's quite a difference as well in terms of time. The average person buying a home for themselves may say time is really important, but in reality it's not. It's all about emotion for them. Uh, the investors on the whole are quite different. Time is normally absolutely critical, and it's not about emotion, it's about money. Uh, and if your solicitor understands that, that's really important. Now I've got about 22 people in my property team, and I spent years going to property events, and when people asked me what I did, I told them I was a solicitor and a developer. Uh, and half of them probably said, oh, I've got a really good solicitor. But at least half, possibly more, started moaning about their solicitor. And it took me a while to realise why. And as I said, it's simply because they hadn't got someone who really understood property investors. And that's really important. So that's number one. Secondly, and this one may surprise you, contrary to popular belief, solicitors are actually human. What do I mean by that? 
Well, like any human, they will respond to decency, kindness, and they'll have good days and bad days. So if you've got a solicitor who you trust, do understand there are going to be occasions when they're really busy and try to help them out. So, for example, it's probably not a good idea to attack them with lots of um, queries, say, on Friday lunchtime or Friday afternoon, where the chances are they're going to have plenty um, of completions. It's also useful if you can uh, avoid unnecessary contact points. What do I mean by that? Well, basically, don't keep pestering them, ringing them phone calls. If you can minimise the number of contacts, perhaps combine some non-urgent points together, that will make their life easier. Be polite. Um, try to help them. Uh, to help you, so respond promptly to their queries, uh, prepare stuff in advance, and whatever you do, don't leave things to the last minute. That can put your solicitor under huge stress. And lastly, a very simple one, a piece of advice I'll pass on, which my old grandma used to tell me when I was seven or eight years old, always say thank you. You'd be surprising how few people do say thank you. Now, I know you're paying a lot for legal services, but saying thank you often goes quite a long way. The third thing is to pick the right person, and by that I mean someone who actually suits your personality. We're all different. In my commencing team over the years, I've had people with some quite different personalities. One of them, for example, an extremely good conveyancer, is very short. He gives bullet points, he's very punchy, he writes very, very, very short letters, and some people like that. On the other hand, I had another solicitor who was extremely good, very able, very experienced. He was far more wordy. He would go into detail. He'd explain things at length. And some people provide that. Personally, I'm a bullet point kind of guy, but equally I accept that other people aren't. So find someone who suits your particular style. Make sure they're going to deal with you in the way you want to be dealt with. So are they best with phone, email? Do they prefer Zoom, for example? Some of our clients deal with Zoom video regularly. Uh, and also find someone who you feel comfortable with someone you can tell the truth to and you can trust. If things do go pear-shaped, you need someone who you feel you can talk to comfortably. So picking the right person, someone who suits you, is important. The fourth of my tips is the need for specialists. Now, if you're just buying a relatively vanilla buy-to-let, that may not be so much of an issue, provided you get someone who's used to dealing with property investors. But you may well be using other strategies and other types of property to buy. So for example, if you're going to buy at auction, make sure your solicitor has plenty of experiences in auctions. The conveyancing process really is quite difficult, different rather. Equally, uh, new bills, lease options, things like that are really quite different. We also have a team that specialise in lease extension and enfranchisement, five of them doing nothing but that. So again, if you're looking to extend a short lease on a flat, make sure you get someone who really knows what they're doing. Very few solicitors deal with them regularly, so make sure you go for a specialist. My fifth and sixth points are both very current. First of all, uh, be aware that currently there are other delays in the market that aren't necessarily caused by your own solicitor. Some of the third parties we're dealing with are very, very slow. Lenders, some lenders in particular, are agonisingly slow, and worse still are some government organisations. So getting a search on the whole is taking longer than it would normally. I know, for example, in Wiltshire, where we do quite a lot of work, it's about six weeks at the moment. Uh, and I also understand that other organisations like Help to Buy are very, very slow as well. So do be aware the delay may not be your solicitor, uh, it may be caused by a third party. And lastly, and this again is a very current point, be aware that solicitors have reacted differently to the COVID world we now live in. Uh, in my opinion, solicitors have been very clearly demarcated into two quite different groups. The first group have coped reasonably well. They have the right software, the right phone system, the right attitudes, they're willing to use video, they've, if necessary, brought all their staff back for furlough, and sometimes, actually, like my own firm, we've taken on extra people in the conveyancing team because we know there's a real spike in work at the moment. 
Others, however, are completely different. Uh, if you speak to a lot of local agents, they'll tell you who the slow solicitors are. And if you've got a good solicitor, you'll ask them, are there solicitors to avoid? And I'm sure they'll say there are. So the kind of things they do is they have poor phone systems, poor IT, they struggle working from home, too many furloughs, um, people too slow to come back from furloughs. In other words, they simply haven't adapted. And that can be a major problem. So make sure your own solicitor isn't one of those. And if it's all possible, if you can have any influence on the other side, whoever is buying or selling to you, see if you can get them to avoid these ultra slow solicitors as well. That is perhaps the best way to get a relatively fast, speedy conveyance done at the moment. I hope that helps. Thank you. On to the first of our questions. Adam sent me a message asking about air source heat pumps and where you can, and probably more importantly, where you can't place them on the property. Thanks for your question, Adam. Right, you do not actually need planning permission to actually have an air source heat pump on your house or your bungalow. However, there are a few rules that you will need to adhere to. These are all set out in class G of part 14 of the GPDO. However, if you live in a listed building or scheduled monument, um, unfortunately you are going to need planning permission because you can't install an air source heat pump on those properties. But if you're in a conservation area or a World Heritage Site, then you can install it. However, it cannot be on a front elevation that fronts a highway. You are allowed to install it on the front wall of a property that's not in a conservation area or a World Heritage Site, but it must be on the ground floor story and not above. You can position it on a flat roof on your property, uh, as long as that flat roof is to the side or to the rear, but it must not be within one meter of the edge of that flat roof. And you also can't install it on a pit roof anywhere on your property. The one final thing that you must be careful of, you can't install it within one meter of the boundary of your curtilage of your property. Your curtilage is generally the land that surrounds your house or bungalow or indeed flats, both on the sides and at the front and at the rear. If you have any land that is separated perhaps by a hedge or a road or indeed a fence, then that may not actually be part of your curtilage. So you do need to check as to what is and what isn't your curtilage of your property. But as long as it's not within one metre, Adam, you can place your air source heat pump either on the ground level or on the first floor or second floor, wherever you wish to place it, as long as that is not on the front elevation. If you're on the front elevation, don't forget you must keep it to the ground level. I hope that answers your question, Adam, but there will be a link in the show notes to my page on Planning Geek on Class G air source heat pumps on domestic premises, just in case you need clarification on the full legislation. Before I move on to my second question, I thought I would give you a quick update upon what was happening on our development sites. As you may know, apart from running Planning Geek, we also have a development company called Leading Homes, which primarily operates in the southwest of England. On our site in Totnes in Devon, we are almost at practical completion on our first 22 flats. 
So we've been down there over the last week doing an awful lot of snagging on these flats as it's very important that anybody buying these flats and moving into them has the best product possible. It will certainly be a nice day when the builders are finally off site and we can get control of the site once more. But before we can get control we just need to ensure that the builders can fix all the various snagging points that we've located in each of the flats. Also starting this week on site in Totnes are the landscapers. So they'll be doing all the fencing, turfing of the communal areas and planting up the front beds with shrubs etc. It should bring the entire site together and really make a very nice environment for those who will be moving into these flats shortly. On another one of our sites, which is a 14 bungalow development in North Devon, we have had to establish as to where the various sewer pipes are that run beneath the site. The problem is that one can never quite rely upon the maps from any water company, and Southwest Water are no exception to this. So we've had to dig some trenches and locate various manhole covers around the large site. One of these hidden manhole covers was actually a foot beneath the ground and another of them was in a large bank that was full of brambles and other overgrown vegetation. This along with several trenches on the site has allowed us to establish as to exactly where the path of these pipes currently run and also check to see as to whether the pipes are actually in use or have been disused at some point by Southwest Water. The reason for having to establish as to exactly where the pipes are and also indeed the dimensions of these pipes is so we can ensure that none of the planned housing is actually on or is too close to any of these pipes. If that had been the case then we may well have had to go back in for planning or revise the planning or even at worst case scenario not be able to build some of the bungalows on the site which if that had been the case would have affected the GDV and indeed the money that our investors are investing in the site. Our other big concern was the depth of these pipes. The further down they are in the ground, the more space you need to keep on either side of the pipes from building upon. This is due to the size of equipment that the water company may well have to use on site in order to reach the pipes and to fix any leaks that may occur over the years. But thankfully they weren't too deep down into the ground and as a result of this we are not foreseeing any problems with the planning that we have in place. I think we all sighed a big relief when we found this out from the groundwork guys that have been on site for a couple of days. I made reference a second ago to the investors and to ensure that we can go ahead with our planned schemes. That brings me on to a quick message that Michael sent me via at Property on Fire and he asked, did I hear that correct that you actually pay 20% interest on loans? I think this was something that I actually said in the very first episode of Property on Fire and the quick answer to you Michael is yes, we have certainly paid 20% on loans in the past and we'll certainly pay 20% on loans in the future from our investors. And if you are interested, Michael, please email investor at leadinghomes.co.uk. Thank you. 
on to the second question on today's episode. And you'll remember that on the last episode, episode three, we had a question from Lucy, who is asking if she can now evict a tenant who is causing her a bit of trouble. Rather than trying to answer the question for you, Lucy, I thought I would get an expert in to help us. And I'm pleased to welcome onto Property on Fire, Angie Nichols, who is from the KPA Property family. Welcome to Property on Fire, Angie. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ian. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's my pleasure to be here today. The question that we had in via email was from Lucy. She was asking us, can she now evict a tenant who is causing her a bit of trouble? And I thought it would be ideal to get an expert in to actually talk about this for her. Good question, Lucy. Evictions are a bit of a nightmare, the eviction space at the moment. Um, It would be useful to um, have a little bit more information. I don't know if we know, Ian, what the the trouble actually is we don't unfortunately her email was uh, fairly uh, fairly sort of um, that that was about it to be honest just there's a bit of trouble so i think it's better we we just try and assume that you know it fits all cases of trouble sure. to be honest okay so what we'll do is we'll have a little bit of a a quick walk through the eviction space and um um have a look how that's looking and it's looking a bit dire at the moment so on September, September of this year, we all got very excited because the courts reopened and we thought, fantastic, business as usual, we can now start, you know, get going again. Um, And obviously there was a massive backlog. And then on November the 5th, we went down into lockdown, country's second lockdown, um, and the government asked the bailiffs not to go in. So it's not so much the court system now, it's the warrant of possession that's the problem. It's the other end. So the court system um, extended the um, evictions to all of them except for the most egregious, the most serious cases, which I'll go through in a moment for you, Lucy, just in case your your the, the trouble to which you refer falls into one of those categories. Um, but if it doesn't, then they're, they're, they're quoting six months. In reality, it's a lot more than six months. So there's um, somebody that, that we know within the property sphere in London who has issued a section 21, and she's got a date for December 2021. So that gives you a kind of an idea of what they're looking at when they're looking at what they would call ordinary cases. Having said that, they have got the more serious cases, the the so-called egregious fast-track cases, which are antisocial behaviour, and that's four weeks. Now, that seems to be the one that people are using at the moment and having really good um, outcomes with wherever possible. Um, The other one is domestic abuse, which is two to four weeks. Uh, There's a false statement, which is two, four weeks, two to four week time period. False statement is where a tenant or somebody else on his behalf, for instance, um, a guarantor, has given false information in order to enter into a tenancy. Um, And there's also breach of immigration, the right to rent, which is three months. So these ones are considered the most serious cases and they're looking at these first. Having said that, bailiffs have been asked not to go in. So unless it's a very serious case of one of those, you're not going to have much much luck with those. Um, As of Tuesday of this week, so the 17th of November, the government have said that um, bailiffs can go in. So warrant of 
of um, possession can be um, activated for very serious rent arrears. And what they're determining as serious rent arrears are from before the first lockdown. So if you've got a tenant that had nine months rent arrears before March the 23rd of this year, 2020. So we're we're in November now. So as of today's date, November 2020, that would be a 17 months rent arrears. Then they can go in. So that's very new. That that's come out this week. But again, try and factor in the fact that there's a big backlog, and you've also got the fact that there were cases that were already in the system before the first lockdown that we have to issue activation reactivation codes for, um, and people are still waiting. People that um, asked for reactivation codes in March still haven't had dates as yet. So it's a a very very long process unless it falls into one of those fast track cases. So it's quite a long answer to to Lucy's question, but um, I hope that helps. No, thank you very much, Angie. Appreciate that. Just for the benefit of anyone listening who perhaps doesn't understand what a Section 21 is, could you perhaps just explain that and any other sort of notice that they might come across? Of course, absolutely. Um, so Section 21 is the no-fault eviction. So there isn't a ground. Um, the landlord just wants their property back. And with that, you have to serve a notice to quit, a notice of a possession, which is called a Form 6A. Now, it's been a very difficult, it's been a very difficult and confusing time for everybody. But within the letting space, it's been like we've all been doing a bit of a COVID dance. Um, and one particular day, a few months ago, uh, Form 6A, changed three times in the same day. So you have to be really careful if you're a landlord and you're serving these things yourself, make sure you get the correct version of the form. And I would always suggest you go to the government website because if you go to the government website and that's the source that you're getting your form from, you know you're downloading the correct version because you've got massive backlogs we're dealing with here. And if it goes to court, it won't it won't get anywhere. It'll get thrown out at the first hurdle if you're not using the correct forms. Is there anything that landlords should have been doing to ensure that the Section 21 can actually be served properly. So I believe there are a few things that they should have put in place perhaps at the start of the tenancy? Absolutely, Ian. Um, So they should be creating a proper tenancy. So um, 2015, the Deregulation Act, um, you then have to to create a proper tenancy. So it wasn't just a case of um, giving a tenant a correct form of the contract. They have to have the up-to-date form of the how to rent guide. They have to have um, an up-to-date gas safety. They need to see um, an EICR. You know, there are documents that they need to see before they enter into a tenancy with you. And if you think about that, there's a common sense angle there because they need to know that the property that they are entering into a tenancy for is a safe property, that it has all the, the regulations and the forms and certification that it that it needs to have. But if you don't serve that correctly, and a lot of landlords don't know this, you know, a lot of landlords come to us and they say, I'm in a bit of a pickle, I've got this problem. Um, And actually, here's the contract that I served. And you look at it and think, ah, that's a real shame. I wish I'd seen you. (laughs) I wish I'd met you earlier. Um, Because not only is the contract not fit for purpose, but they haven't created the tenancy correctly. And if they don't, 
then they won't be able to serve Section 21. I believe they have to register the deposit somewhere. Oh, yes, absolutely. The deposit has to be registered. Um, with uh, It has to be registered within 30 days, has to be lodged correctly within a government bond. Um, we have seen all sorts in, you would not believe, one I had two weeks ago, which, you know, I don't even crease a smile anymore because I've seen so many. I had to keep a deadpan face. It was actually in an ISA. So, uh <laughs> that was a new one with me. Someone's deposit in an ISA. So yes, it needs Crazy. to be in a correct government place um, and it needs to be within 30 days of receipt and you have to serve those forms as well on the tenant. So again, look at that from a common sense angle. They need to know that their deposit is secure and that it's been lodged properly. So what happens if, if a landlord hasn't done these? Does it mean that, that they can't serve a Section 21 or is there another alternative to get the property back? It means they can't serve a Section 21 and they need to go back to the start and create that tenancy again. This is the point at which I would always advise to elevate. Don't mess about with that yourself. Go and speak to somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, you know, when, if we have a, a situation where we've got a landlord situation, it's a little bit sticky or we can see that it's going to be a problem, um, then, you know, we've got an agency that we can elevate to and they will check that everything is fine and, and proper as it should be before it even gets to court. So if you find yourself in a situation like that, it can be sorted. Let's be honest, most things can be sorted um, but you need to start and serve that tenancy and create that tenancy again um, and that's where I would seek advice. Sure and and what is the best way to find that advice if people aren't particularly local perhaps to where you operate with uh, the KPA prop- property family? That's us, KPA Property Family. Yep. So we operate in the southwest. So we've got we cover Bristol and Swindon. We're just about to branch out into devices. Um, so yeah, come and speak to us, kpa.co.uk, uh, wherever you are in the country. Um, if it's not something that you know is near to us, then I'm more than happy to put you in touch with somebody that can help uh, the company that we use. If we have to to elevate um, our nationwide, and they are absolutely superb. So uh, yeah, feel free to contact me, and I can. Uh, I can talk you through. If you fancy being a guest on Property on Fire, please do get in touch. You can send me an email at ian at propertyonfire.co.uk and perhaps you can help answer one of the many questions that I get in every week. It doesn't matter what your speciality is in property. I would love to hear from you. Coming up on the next episode, we're going to be talking about books. Planning and property books. Do you have any books on your bookshelf that you would recommend to others? If you do have any suggestions, please tweet me at Property on Fire or perhaps email me, Ian at Property on Fire, and let me know. A massive thanks to our guests on today's episode, Tim Bishop from Bonalak and Bishop Solicitors and also the lovely Angie Nichols from KPA. You can find their contact details in the show notes from today's episode. So please feel free to get in touch with either of them. So until the next episode, keep safe. And if I can help you in your property journey, then please do get in touch. Have a wonderful week. Property on Fire with Ian Walmsley. Please use your podcast app to rate, review and subscribe to the show. And if you'd like a question answered on a future episode, email ian at propertyonfire.co.uk.